As we move into the prayer, one thing to note is that this is fairly customary of Paul. In his epistles, there's a a general pattern that you can observe where he gives some opening comments and then he moves on to an introductory prayer. It's fairly standard in Paul's epistles. He begins with some comments, some greetings, and then he, he launches into a prayer for the believers to whom he's writing. It's fairly standard. The problem with the letter to the Ephesians or with this prayer is that his opening comments, the eulogy that we've been studying for a number of weeks, have said and communicated to the Ephesians that they have everything. What Paul says in his opening comments in this letter is that you Christians lack nothing. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All that God has for you, he has given to you. So the reason I say it's a problem is what do you pray for someone who has everything? What do you pray for somebody who has everything? That's the question that I want to try and answer this evening by looking at Paul's prayer. It is a question that does relate to the Christians in Ephesus. It also relates to us. Because in this sense, the Ephesians were not unique. The blessings that Paul has outlined in verses 3 through 14 are universal to all those who are found in Christ. You, this evening, lack nothing. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. God hasn't withheld anything from you. You have everything. Therefore, what on earth do you pray for such a rich, rich person? The answer, in summary, is that Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know more of God and his gospel. That's my summation of Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. What do you pray for someone who has everything? Answer, you pray that they would know more of God and his gospel. And every part of that statement is important. Every part of it reflects Paul's prayer. Every part of his prayer is crucial. You don't lack anything. The blessing has been bestowed upon you. You have every spiritual blessing. What you need to do is apprehend it. You need that God would grant you eyes to further apprehend the blessing. To further see it because your apprehension of it directly affects the way in which you live. But that alone is insufficient. If all you do is apprehend the blessing apart from the blesser, you actually start to distort the blessing. If you only see the gift and you never consider the giver, The articulation of the gift itself in your heart starts to change. And so what you need to do and what Paul understands and prays for the Ephesians is that they must know, apprehend, seize a greater understanding of both the gift and the giver. 
They must hold both together in unison, and it is then and only then that you are equipped to bless God. That has been the driving motivation of Paul since verse 3 onwards. Implicit exhortation. God is blessed. He is praised. Implicit question, is your life praising him? Are you blessing him? And so week after week as we've worked through this eulogy, I've been exhorting you to consider whether you are responding in your life to the blessings that you have received by blessing God in return. That continues to be Paul's concern here as he prays for the Ephesians. He wants them to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that they have received, to borrow from the language of chapter 4 in this epistle. How then do you do that? You better understand your God, the God who is the giver of the gospel. May that be our experience through this text this evening. Now, to get at it, I just want to ask a few questions as we walk through verse by verse, asking questions of the text so as to unearth its truth. The first question being, to whom or for whom is Paul praying? For whom is Paul praying? Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The simple answer to the question, for whom is Paul praying? The simple answer is the Christians at Ephesus. It's in the same letter. Contextually, this is a prayer for them. But we should and ought to go further and say it's not just for the Christians in Ephesus, but specifically it's for those who are spiritually rich. That's how Paul is viewing these Christians. He says in verse 3, you have everything. So we understand rightly this prayer is a prayer for those who are spiritually blessed. That is to say, all Christians. We can go even further and say this is a prayer for the spiritually flourishing. Look what Paul says, for this reason. The reason being... I have heard about your faith in the Lord and your love towards the saints. Thinking back to this morning's message, these Christians were doing the thing. They were bearing fruit. Paul says, since I left you, I have heard reports of your steadfastness in your faith towards the things of the Lord. And I've heard about your love for one another. He invokes both the horizontal and the vertical pillars of the Christian faith and say, you guys are doing it. And so he is praying for them. Notice that is the impetus which prompts him to pray. We so often think about this in completely contrary terms. I will pray this kind of prayer for the spiritually weak, for the spiritually immature, for the new believer in Christ, Completely to the contrary, Paul says, it is precisely because of your maturity that I'm praying these things. So you see, by way of application, this prayer is a prayer for life. 
That was my sermon title this week, A Prayer for Life. You never get beyond this prayer. Is it a prayer for the spiritually weak? Absolutely. Is it a prayer for the spiritually strong? Absolutely. It is always to be a prayer in the Christian life. So then, second question, what is the prayer? What does Paul pray for these spiritually flourishing Christians? Well, he gives thanks for them. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he outlines the petition. Verse 7, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There's Paul's petition on their behalf. The spirit there in verse 17 is rightly capitalized in my ESV. It is not to be understood as our spirit. Our spirit does not give us insight and revelation, at least not of the sort that Paul is asking for. It is the Holy Spirit that shines the kind of light that Paul wants them to have. He's not saying, you don't have this Holy Spirit, I'm asking for it, because as you remember, back in 11 through 14, he spoke about the fact that at the moment of saving faith, you receive the Spirit. So properly understood, what Paul is saying here is, I am praying for a particular manifestation of the Spirit, a particular working of the Spirit in you. I am praying for a particular, a specific ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst you. The particular ministry that he is praying for is that that gives wisdom and revelation. They are not synonyms Wisdom would pertain more to a deeper understanding of things perceived. If I pray for wisdom in a particular area, I'm asking for an appreciation, a deeper grasp of the things that I know. Revelation, by contrast, as perhaps it sounds, is an appreciation, a perception, a grasping of things not known. Reveal them to me. So wisdom speaks of a grasping of the things understood at a deeper level. Revelation speaks of a grasping of the things not made plain. Bringing them both together, we understand that Paul's prayer is that they would develop a holistic, robust, in-depth, and intimate knowledge of God himself. The prayer that I have for you, Ephesians, is that the Holy Spirit would manifest himself in such a way so as to give you wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Him there, most likely referring back to verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is Paul's opening prayer for the spiritually flourishing, the Christians in Ephesus. I want you to better know God. Now, why would that be Paul's concern for them? 
They're doing really well. They're flourishing. He's hearing the reports. He prays for them. And and just to, to jump ahead, where he's going with this is that they would better grasp the eulogy. This is where we're headed tonight. He's going to pray a mirror image of the eulogy, verses 3 through 14. And he wants the Christians to better grasp the blessings that he has just spent so long outlining. So if that's where he's headed, why doesn't he just pray that? Why does he begin by saying, first and foremost, I want you to better apprehend the giver? To better grasp God. And the answer is because our apprehension of everything is informed first by our apprehension of God. God is the font of all knowledge. And our perception of anything in the world is directly influenced by our understanding of God. This is why it's so important for Christians to be ever striving to develop a more accurate biblical worldview. This is a responsibility in the Christian life that you would see things the way God sees them. You want to have a Christian worldview. When you look at different situations, you want to perceive them in the way that God perceives them. It is your responsibility to be sharpening your thoughts on various circumstances and situations to develop that biblical Christian worldview. And there are many different ways in which you can develop that worldview. We are served at this point in church history with wonderful resources that can help us. But perhaps the most helpful thing you can do is to study God. If you want to know what God thinks about something, the very best thing you can do is to study Him and His character And the more that you allow your thoughts to be aligned with his thoughts, the more you will reflect him in your thinking on other things. I guess most of my illustrations are taken from the submarine days. And that's not something I'm proud of. I'm terrible at illustrating. I would fail preaching class in seminary because I just cannot illustrate readily and And when I do try and illustrate, my mind wanders back to those days because they were such a significant part of our life for so long. And and just this week, I was pondering a time when I was in that oversized sardine tin with many other guys and and a book that I read that was, was transformative in my life. So when we went away for three, four months, you know, the, the enemy was not claustrophobia. That's what most people think. Did you not get claustrophobic? And, and that's just not an issue. You'd think it would be, but it's not. The enemy is boredom. After you've done your work, and you've eaten, and you've slept, you've still got about six hours of the day to fill every single day for three to four months. And so I would take with me as many books as I could fit into my personal locker. You have a locker about this big, and the rule is if you can fit it in there, you're allowed to take it. And if you can't, it doesn't come. 
So I would fit into my locker as many books as I could bring, and they were books that had been recommended to me or that I knew had stood the test of time, and I, I ought to read at some point in my life. And guess what? I've got a three-month period coming up where I'm not going to be doing an awful lot. So I'm going to take it with me. And, and there are books that, that I read during that time that the Lord used greatly in my life. I remember taking with me the Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. And the first half of that book, as many of you will know, he walks through what does not constitute a religious affection. One after another, what does not constitute a true, genuine religious affection. And I'm reading it, and it's, it's hard, and I'm not encouraged. But you then get to the second half of the book. And then you read what does constitute a true religious affection. And I remember so vividly sitting in my cabin on the submarine, feeling like I was being saved all over again. Just incredible theology that, that the man had written about religious impulses in the heart. And my religious impulses were firing as I was reading about them. Another book that I read during that time was Stephen Charnock's two volumes, The Existence and Attributes of God. Now, I had come across that book by way of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. In J.I. Packer's introduction, he says something to the effect of very few would ever dare to attempt to read Stephen Charnock's Existence and Attributes of God. And I read a comment like that and I think, okay, I'm doing it. I don't know anything about this book. I just read the one comment, and I thought, I'm going to read this. So I found a second-hand copy on the internet. I ordered it. It came in the mail, two volumes. They fit in my locker. I took them away with me, and for about three months of my life, I made friends with Stephen Charnock. Chapter after chapter, page after page after page of his meditations on the various attributes of God. And two things happened. Number one, I got to know the God that saved me a whole lot better through Stephen Charnock. And number two, I started to look at the world differently. I started to think about things differently. I knew so much better now the character of God and his character is informing and instructing my thoughts on the world around me. Whatever you think about anything, it is indirectly, first and foremost, influenced by what you think about God. So as Paul wants them to apprehend better their blessings, he begins by saying, I want for you to know God. And that principle is especially true as it relates to the gospel. It is especially true as it relates to the gospel. You see, as a rule of thumb, there are many things that the darkened mind, the mind that has not received the saving light of the gospel, there are many things that that mind can know accurately but they tend to be things that are far removed from the spiritual realities of the gospel. So you can have a, a banker or an accountant or an engineer or an architect that knows very accurately the way the world works in his area of expertise without any saving knowledge of the gospel, 
without knowing God relationally. They can hit the nail on the head in many areas. But as you move away from those everyday non-spiritual issues towards eternal realities, as you start to move the focus toward the gospel, one thing that you do not find is theologians who have no knowledge of God and understand perfectly his gospel. That doesn't happen. So as Paul wants them to get their minds and their hearts around their blessings, verses 3 through 14, of the utmost importance for him as he prays is that you would get to know better God. He wants them to know the giver so that they would understand better the gift. You have to understand his attributes and his character. You have to understand his disposition towards you in Christ so that you can see the glory of the gospel. And if you won't give your time to understanding God, then your understanding of the gospel will be second best, second rate at best. Understand this, that if you don't give time to learning of God himself, then surely over time, your understanding of the gift, the gospel, your blessings will start to be warped, will start to get subtly distorted. He wants you to have the gift and the giver in view at all times. If you don't focus on the giver if he's never in the meditations of your heart and all you ever do is focus on the gift, the very nature of it starts to change within your heart so that over time you'll start to think thoughts like, I chose God, he didn't choose me. Paul has told us at length, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before you were, he elected you. If you don't keep the giver in view, you start to change the gift and start to believe. Not that God chose you as an act of his grace, but I chose God. If you don't keep the giver in view over time, you will start to believe that the purpose for you having chosen God was for your benefit. That's the, that's the sum total, the final expression of the gospel is that I am in a safe place. You lose sight of the drumbeat that Paul has been banging all the way through the eulogy. This whole thing is for the praise of his glory. That's why he ordained this gospel. It wasn't ultimately for your good, but ultimately for his glory. He is a self-exalting God, and we should love that fact, because if he were not, he wouldn't be God. And if you don't keep the giver in view, but only look at the gift, you start to change the gift. And you start to believe that the end goal of the gospel is your good and not God's glory. And what that leads to is the type of consumerism that we see so prevalent in the church in the West today. It has seeped in from society 
but it is so often helped and encouraged by Christians who refuse to meditate on God and look only to his gift. Paul's prayer to begin with is that you would better apprehend God himself. And with that in view, he then moves on to the gift. He says, verse 18, having had the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that's a, a, a better understanding of the grammar of that phrase. Paul is not praying that your eyes would be enlightened. They have been opened by the gospel Verse 18, having had the eyes of your hearts enlightened, with that being a reality, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So he prays there three things for the Ephesians, but again, I want to labor that all of them derive from the original first petition. The first petition, I want you to know God. I'm praying for you that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom and revelation as it relates to God in order that you may know these three things. Your better, more fuller apprehension of the gospel comes from your better, more fuller apprehension of God. Now, what are the specifics of the gifts that Paul outlines? Well, as I mentioned earlier, they are the truths that he has already given to us in the eulogy. Paul has already been hinting at this. He has already been hinting that his prayer is headed towards an articulation of the blessings that he's already outlined. So look at the fact that in verse 17, he introduces God in his prayer as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has options when he prays and especially when he writes so as to record his prayer. Why does he record in this instance God as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ? He's making plain this connection between the Father and the Son, I think, because one of his points of emphasis in the eulogy, as you know, is that all of this comes by virtue of our being in Christ. We are in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Him, all the way through verses 3 through 14. And now he's saying, remember, you are in Christ who is in relationship with God the Father. And then notice he calls him the father of glory. Isn't that interesting? Why would Paul in this prayer in particular call God the father of glory? Again, it is because in the eulogy he has been pointing us toward God's glory as the end of all things. The end for which God created the world is his glory. That's why you're saved. So remember, I am praying right now to the Father of glory. And with those subtle hints that he's about to launch into a re-articulation of the eulogy, he then does so. He says, verse 18, 
that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. There's the first petition that flows out of our knowledge of God himself. Well, Paul has already spoken about the reality of our calling in verses 3 and 4 and 5. In the eulogy, he says, you have been chosen, predestined, elected, called. And now, as you better apprehend the giver, so you will further see the hope of this calling. Here, Paul is pointing back to past Christian experience at the point of you coming into a relationship with God the Father. And he says, I just want you to know more about that. I want you to know more intimately, to treasure more sincerely the reality of your calling into salvation. And within the economy of the prayer, I want you to know about that calling as it relates to God the Father. It is not the case that as a Christian, you should only be able to articulate how you became a Christian. To give your testimony should not be simply that you can explain the circumstances that led to you being a Christian today. But so much more that you would be able to say what it means that you're a Christian. I was once dead in my trespasses. I had no spiritual life in me. I did not have any inclination towards God the Father. I had no ability to obey Him, nor did I have any desire. But God, in His grace, cut and severed, finally, the cause of bondage to my sin. He did away with them, ultimately, so that I no longer have a desire for that sin. And he freed me so as to get up and walk out of the dungeon cell. Is the truth that we sing. God the Father from before the foundation of the world did that in my life. He predestined that that would be a reality of which I can speak today. God the Father accomplished it by sending his only son to die on the cross. And when I sing about the cross on a Sunday morning, I am proclaiming the victory that Christ won for me. This is how your calling relates to God the Father. And Paul's desire is that you would know it. Not that it would be a mere set of data that you articulate in your testimony saying, this was the circumstances that led to me being a Christian. But oh, that you would have the theology that undergirds it. That you would have and treasure the theology that is true in the gospel and in your life today. He then moves on to the second petition that flows out from a knowledge of God the Father. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance In the saints. Again, Paul has spoken about these very realities. Remember back in verse 11, we read of how in him we are rendered an inheritance. God has rendered us as as his inheritance. Paul gave us that truth in his eulogy, and now all he does in his prayer is ask that we would know it. That we would apprehend it and embrace it. 
and specifically that we would apprehend and embrace this truth as it relates to God the Father. That we would not, as Christians, be satisfied to merely know, in a mental sense, I have a glorious hope one day. Paul is here pointing to the future reality for the Christian, but at a heart level, we would be living every day with an excitement for the glory that is to come. At a heart level, there would be a genuine excitement for the return of the risen Lord Jesus. Because I have meditated upon that truth, and especially as it relates to God the Father, who destined me to be there on that final day. We sung of it this morning just so wonderfully. Where will I be? When the, when the first trumpet sounds, when it sounds so loud, where will I be on that day? And the Christian rejoices because he says, I will be in glory and I will be counted as God's inheritance. Because God is a self-exalting God and he will get glory on the last day. If you look around you now, you might be discouraged to think, I cannot see how God is getting glory for himself in this dark world. Be encouraged. He is working out everything in accordance with his plan such that on the last day, he will not lose one ounce of glory, but all of it will be rendered unto him. And a very large slice of that glory will come from the fact that you will be counted as his inheritance. You see, God will be glorified through everything that he has ordained. God will get glory for himself through judgment. God will be glorified through the judgment of sinners. But even more, an, an even higher manifestation of God's glory will come through your final salvation. More glory will come through salvation because of how he worked in the gospel to bring you from a place of utter darkness to a place of final glory. And so the heavenly hosts will sing about you. On that last day is God's inheritance. And Paul says, this is true of you. My prayer is that you would know it. And the third thing that flows from our knowledge of God is that we would also know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. It's a very convoluted sentence. There's lots of words there that hover around the concept of strength. They are not synonyms, but they each have a slightly different meaning. And as you try and pick apart this sentence, Calvin offers us a very helpful illustration where he talks about God's might, that last word in verse 19 being the root. God has a, an almighty might, that then gives rise to this, this greatness that could easily be, have been translated strong, his strong might, the might gives, gives uh, 
uh, virtue to this, this strength, which would be the trunk of the tree, says Calvin. And then that comes to us through the branches and the leaves and the fruit by virtue of this word power. So God's might yields a strength that is experienced by us as power that is coming forth every day, hour by hour. That's the notion of what Paul is communicating here. So if we zoom back, what we can see Paul has done in just two verses is he has spanned from the past experience of having been called to the future experience of an inheritance to now the present day where we are empowered. In two verses, he's put his arms around the entirety of the Christian life. And this central thought is perhaps the most prominent in Paul's understanding, at least as it relates to his reason for praying, because it's upon this central thought, the present-day reality of the Christian, that he expands to talk about Christ. And the power that we witness through him, which is what we'll look at next week. For now, it is enough to say that your responsibility is to know at a heart level the power that is yours in the gospel through Christ. Paul wants you to know that God empowers the Christian day after day, hour by hour, so as to live a life that honors him. He does not leave you with insufficient resources to walk the life that he has called you to. That is not what God is doing. Because God is so for you, he is for your good. He doesn't set you up for failure. Know this, God does not set the Christian up for failure. God is so for your good that he empowers you, both in your circumstances and in your perception of them. God is working through the Holy Spirit such that you are able now to respond to each and every day in a way that brings glory to God. He equips you by his Holy Spirit through his word so as to live a life that does not dishonor him. He empowers you every day to bring glory to him. And Paul says, you're not lacking. He hasn't left you without the resources. I just want for you to know it. You see, this is the whole prayer. After the eulogy... He has said, you, you have everything. What's left? What do you pray for someone that has everything? Answer that they would know it. And Paul's prayer is that you would know it so that, we've thought about the, the who, praying for the, the spiritually flourishing. You are never, ever exempt from this prayer. We've thought about the what. I want you to know God and his gospel. I want you to know more of the gift and the giver. Why does he pray? 
folding this prayer into the broader context, the reason Paul prays is again in order that you would bless God. Or, looking forward to chapter 4, he prays so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's his desire. He is not praying for the things that you and I so usually pray about. I've been so challenged myself personally this week by this prayer. I'm often asked, how can I pray for you? I'm so grateful for the prayers of the saints, especially for you and your prayers. And so often folks will ask me on a Sunday or during the week, how can I pray for you? And I just... I was so challenged this week to think about my standard response. And I normally say something to the effect of, would you just pray that God would would cause me to do well in my responsibilities that he has set before me? Trying to spin these plates and not let them drop and just pray that I would do well in my responsibilities as a pastor and a professor and a husband, a father. And I don't think that request is wrong. But the challenge was to think, when was the last time that I answered that question and said, would you just pray that I would know God better? Would you pray that I would know better the riches of the gospel? This is a prayer for life for every believer. So that not your circumstances would change. You see, there are so many challenges as we truly come to terms with this scriptural prayer. Other prayers we might pray, would you pray this changes in my life, or this changes, or God brings about this. We're praying for a change in circumstance, which again, in and of itself, is not necessarily wrong. But oh, that we would pray that our hearts would change. Not primarily our circumstances, but our response to our circumstances. Pray that I would know God more and his gospel so that in the circumstances in which he has placed me, I would honor him better. That is the prayer of Ephesians 1. Drawing from the immediate context of verse 15, think about this prayer in relation to this church. We spoke about this last week. Contrary to our individualistic form of Christianity, what Paul gives us through the eulogy and in the prayer is a very corporate form of Christianity. That is to say, a biblical Christianity. All of the plural pronouns in the eulogy testify that this was to be received as a congregation and worked out as a congregation. So also for us, we receive this prayer not primarily thinking about it as ourselves separate from one another. But Paul says, you Ephesians have a reputation for steadfastness in your faith, a consistency concerning the things of the Lord, and you have a reputation for your love towards the saints. Would it not be Paul's prayer as he asked that they would know more of God and his gospel that those two things increase yet more? 
He wants them to keep doing good things as a church. Think about the appropriation of this prayer to the life of this church. That you would ask one another to pray for each other, that you would know God more and his gospel. Why? So that you would be a better church member. I want to know more of God and his gospel so that I would be found faithful as a member of Bethany Bible Church. I want to know more of God and his gospel so that I would love better the saints with whom I've been brought into fellowship at this local church. This is where God has you. Praise him. Now you need to honor him in this context. And that what that means is a steadfastness towards all things of the Lord, the ministry of this church. I can count on this person because I know they'll be there. I can count on this person because they always show up. They are steadfast in the Lord. And I know how much this person loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine the outworking of this prayer if we would pray it for one another consistently. That God would so work in our hearts such that the love that already exists in this place only abounds yet more and more and more. I pray that we would be known even more for our steadfastness in the Lord and our love towards all the saints as a result of our knowledge of God and of his gospel. Pray right now to that end. Father God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you? Having had the eyes of our hearts enlightened, I pray that we would know what is the hope to which you have called us? That we would know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. And that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believed according to the working of your great might. In Jesus' name, amen.